Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview psychologist Daryl Ray. If religion can teach you to be guilty of something you're going to do anyway, it makes you come back to their particular God virus. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Daryl Ray is a professional psychologist and the author of The God Virus, How Religion Infects Our Lives and Culture. Daryl, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Good to be on. Daryl, before we begin, would you share with us your own faith journey? Well, I was raised in a pretty fundamentalist environment with uh, very, very devout religious parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. I have missionaries, I have preachers, I have Sunday school teachers, all over the place in my family. And my parents eventually became missionaries when they retired. Grandfather was a country church preacher, and, and it was kind of funny because he wasn't very well educated. Interesting to hear him preach his sermons. Mostly were Republican Christian sermons is what they amounted to. So I was, that was the kind of environment I was raised in, Wichita, Kansas. So that is something right in and of itself. But I went to uh, Friends University, a small Quaker liberal arts college, and mm-hmm. take um, New Testament, Old Testament, uh, Christian beginnings, you know, all that stuff. So I got pretty deeply indoctrinated and actually taught Sunday school for many years, did a little preaching, and decided to get my master's degree in religion. So I got uh, my master's from Skerritt College for Christian Workers in Nashville, Tennessee. I thought I was going to go into ministry, but um, after two years of going through that, I realized I couldn't um, tell other people what to believe if I didn't believe it myself. So pretty well dropped out of that and uh, moving on into psychology. And and at that time, I can also say I was starting to move out of religion as well. But I was still married, still had two kids. Um, very, very religious family on my in-laws' side and on my, and on my side. Very difficult to get away from that when you're the only person in the family who's asking questions. So I stayed with that until, uh, until I was about 35 years old. And I think probably by 35 I was an agnostic, uh, plus or minus a few months or even years. And uh, by 40, after having gone through a divorce and was able to get away from all that, I, I realized that none of it made any sense. So I was an atheist by 40, probably. Been pretty happy ever since. I can't say I really miss any of the religious stuff. I think the joy of faith-free living is more than it's cracked up to be, actually. I, I can almost say I never found joy in religion. It did not turn me on. I was always fighting inside myself. I love to sing. I was tenor soloist in, in several different churches. And, uh, man, I could I could belt out a, a tune and... Uh, I could get people crying, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I'm sitting here thinking, I don't believe a word I'm singing here, and yet people are crying about what I'm singing. Something's wrong with this picture. (laughs) 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 And then, of course, you got to sing all these songs, Onward Christian Soldiers, and, you know, I'm I'm not sure I'm a pacifist, but I'm pretty close to it in some ways. I'm thinking, why do I want to sing a song about Onward Christian Soldiers? Well, your book is called The God Virus. How is religion like a virus in a person's life? Well, how is a computer virus like a virus? Many of your listeners will have experienced a computer virus. And uh, they probably didn't go to the technician when they got their computer fixed. And he said, well, you got a virus on your computer. They probably didn't get upset and say, well, there's not a virus. 
they probably said, well, fix it. And that's kind of the way I view the God virus. A computer virus is a set of instructions on how to infect your computer and do bad things to it and get to the next computer. A religion is a set of instructions on in how to infect your, your brain, do some bad things to you in many ways, and get on to the next brain. They have remarkable similarities. And as I explore it in the book, when I first started writing the book, I really didn't think I was writing a book. I thought I was writing an article based on some concepts that Richard Dawkins had said 20 years ago on viruses in the mind. But the more I wrote, the more I realized, dang, this, this metaphor, and I want to be clear, it is a metaphor. This metaphor works. It works incredibly well. Because uh, religious viruses act very much like computer viruses. And computer viruses act very much like biological viruses. So we can draw a lot of parallels around it. For example, antibodies. Whenever a virus gets into your body, your system tests it out and creates antibodies to stop that virus from getting into you. You're most susceptible to getting viruses when you're young because you have the fewest antibodies. And if you get some viruses when you're young, like chickenpox, you'll have them the rest of your life because chickenpox hides from the immune system. So you will... Um, in fact, adults who have a disease called shingles are really just expressing chickenpox. And adults with shingles can give chickenpox to children who've never had chickenpox because it's the same virus. Mm. So if you think about, here's biological viruses hide inside your system for your entire life. Well, religion does the same thing. You get infected with religion when you're young. And it's, it's a race. Religion has to get you infected as young as possible. Because if they don't, they run the risk of losing you forever. Uh, at the same time, as you're getting infected, say, with a Catholic virus or an evangelical virus or a Baptist virus or, you know, whatever the God virus is in your particular family, because it's almost always your own family, as you're getting infected with that, you're also getting the antibodies to keep you immune to other God viruses. So a Baptist child gets infected with the Baptist virus and gets the antibodies to the Catholic virus or the Pentecostal virus, or the Mormon virus, or the Jehovah's Witnesses virus. I don't know about you, Luke, but when I was being raised, when I came up in my fundamentalist family, we we got all sorts of messages about Catholics are going to hell because yeah. they're a false religion, and the Pope is the Antichrist, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, mine wasn't that strong, but there was some question as to whether we should call Catholics Christians. And yeah, of right. course, certainly, you know, becoming a Muslim or a Hindu is unthinkable. Oh, absolutely, right. And and we got we got pretty strong messages about Mormons, too. You know, what you get is messages and antibodies about the uh, religions that are in your immediate vicinity. Because you rarely get antibodies about religions that aren't close to you. I'm, I would be surprised if you got the antibodies to Zoroastrianism. Well, my, a lot of people that I knew, they were very missionary-oriented, and so there was a lot of world missions work in my community of believers. And so I went to China, I, you know, had lots of friends who were going to India and this kind of thing, so I think maybe that's why yeah. there was actually mention of Islam and Hinduism, because otherwise, if it was just in the U.S., we wouldn't have to mention them. That's true, that's true, yeah, that's a, that's a good insight, uh, and, and I saw that in my, uh, my church as well. We'd have missionaries come in and tell us what's wrong with Islam and what's wrong with uh, 
Hinduism because they were in India or some other place. So we did get some of those antibodies, but they weren't nearly as strong as the antibodies for the Catholics. <laughs> or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> Got to watch out for those Catholics. Yeah, well, yeah, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would knock on your door, so my, uh, my parents were real clear about who those people were. <laughs> as well as my grandfather. He was pretty good at telling us who they were, too. And then uh, it's very important to realize that God viruses, like I said, hide from the immune system, just like some biological viruses hide from the immune system. And that's why people don't even know they're infected with a particular God virus. The, uh, the infection is literally hidden from them. I do some experiments when I give my talks about the God virus to show people what's going on, but I'm sure you've... You've noticed, you, you have probably noticed with um, arguing with religious people that let's say you're talking with a, a Baptist. You can ask them, what's wrong with Mormonism? And they can probably be pretty specific and pretty articulate about what's wrong with Mormonism. And if you ask that same person what's wrong with Catholicism, they can probably tell you in a fairly educated and articulate way. You know, if they had any education in their religion. There are some people who don't seem to know anything, I know, but... So you can ask this question, what's, what's the problem with Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Catholicism? And they can be articulate. Then you turn the same question, what's wrong with being a Baptist? What's the fatal problem with being a Baptist? They can't tell you. Their eyes glaze over. They lose their ability to talk logically and think logically and interact logically. And they, their reasoning oftentimes drops back to about a five- to seven-year-old's. Uh, reasoning level, logic level, and it's really obvious. It just—it's like as obvious as the nose on your face that something has happened to their brain when you switch from "Can you tell me about other people's religion, the flaws with those religions?" to "Can you tell me about the flaws in your religion?" They can't do it. It—it's impossible because the God virus blinds people to their own infection, just like. The um, chickenpox blinds your immune system to your infection with the chickenpox virus. Hence, you keep it for the rest of your life. Well, and I'm sure some of the other characteristics that you gave for a virus are fairly obvious to people, like the fact that religion can often be harmful to the person, and of course the fact that religion is designed to spread from brain to brain. There are a lot of infection strategies. I go through those in the book pretty thoroughly and in my lectures as well. But religions have infection strategies that are remarkably similar to biological viruses. Or, you know, I could have, or funguses or bacteria. In fact, I could have called the book The God Fungus or The God Bacteria because, you know, we're looking at a metaphor here. We're looking at how biological systems are infected with a number of different pathogens. And we're looking at how human brains are infected with a specific pathogen we call religion. Now, there's other pathogens, don't get me wrong. There's other mental pathogens, if you will. I have just chosen to focus on uh, on religion as the main one. Well, what are some of these infection strategies that are similar to uh, biological infection strategies? All viruses have a infection strategy to get into you uh, biologically. Now, that infection strategy could be horizontal or vertical. A horizontal infection strategy would be if you have a cold, the cold virus gets in your nose, irritates the membrane and the nerves in your nose, 
to get you to sneeze. So, in other words, the virus has taken over your neurological system, not unlike the way rabies does, or there's other pathogens that take over your neurological system. So the, the cold virus takes over your neurological system and gets you to sneeze so that it can get from me to you or from you to me in the sneeze. That's what we call a horizontal infection strategy. A vertical infection strategy would be genetic diseases or uh, sickle cell anemia. You get it from your parents. You can also get, say, HIV AIDS from your mother through the birth canal. So that would be a vertical infection strategy. Any infection strategy you get from your parents is, is vertical. Well, look at how religions propagate. All religions use one or the other or both of these infection strategies. Uh, Mormons are out knocking on doors and Jehovah's Witnesses are knocking on doors. And they essentially want to sneeze on you. They want you to catch their God virus. And that's the way they do it. It's a horizontal infection strategy. Whereas the Amish have a vertical infection strategy. It's very difficult to become an Amish. If you weren't born Amish, you're not going to be Amish. Jews, same thing. It's very difficult to become Jew. There's a religion off in uh, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, called the Druze religion. And it's been there since the 1200s. They closed their religion in the 1200s. You can't become a Druze. So it only has a vertical infection strategy. You get infected from your parents. Uh, Mormons are using both strategies. Have as many kids as you can, brainwash them all, and send them off on mission trips to do horizontal infection. So you're getting both in that. We've spoken a bit about how religion acts like a virus in a person's life. How does religion act like a virus in a culture? Glad you asked that, because the one aspect of the book that I found most fascinating to write about is one that people don't seem to grasp as quickly or jump on. They, you know, it's like in the book, they, they really like the personal examples and they like the, my the illustration of how hypnosis works and the guilt cycle works. But uh, what I've noticed, people don't realize that the God virus is actively working in your culture at all times. What I talk about in the book is that religion wants to couple with culture. Religion and culture are two different things. They are not the same thing. Now, religions would have you believe that they are the same thing, but, but they're absolutely not. You can have culture without religion, and you can have religion without culture. And we see that in Sweden, for example, where there's virtually no religion anymore, and they've got quite a viable culture. But if you listen to the religionist talk, especially, say, in the United States or in Saudi Arabia, you would think that the religion is the culture. Well, in Saudi Arabia, the God virus, we call Islam, has and did couple with with the culture of Saudi Arabia. If a religion can take over a culture, infect it so thoroughly that it becomes the culture, if you will, then there's no danger to it. There's no competition anymore. That's the beauty, and that's what almost all God viruses try to do. They try to infect the neurological system of a culture, and that being the political system, of course. So you see the rulers of most of the Islamic countries are Islamic themselves, and they're very infected, and they create laws that protect Islam. Once you've captured the political system, then your religion is safe. Now you look at what's going on in Denmark, or what happened just the other day in Sweden. Muslims are coming into an area. They are not integrating into Denmark or Sweden. Mm -hmm. They're setting up their enclaves, and they're starting to push to infect they're trying to write laws and push laws that protect them at the expense of other religions. And they're electing people, and they're creating 
legal challenges to our liberal secular societies. You can almost watch the God virus, Islam, infecting or trying to infect the political neurological system of Europe. And then you look at the United States and you can see that fundamentalists, people like Focus on the Family, James Dobson or Jerry Falwell, we've had concerted efforts of those organizations to infect our political systems mm -hmm. with ideas they're just flat crazy. You look at what's happening in the Texas School Board where they're writing Je Thomas Jefferson out of the <laughs> out of U.S. history. <laughs> the writer of the Declaration of Independence gets written out of U.S. history. He wasn't Christian enough. He wasn't Christian at all. He's probably deist. So you can see that what they want to do is they want to infect the political system because that's where the neurology is, much like your brain. They want to infect your brain. They also want to infect the political brain of a, of a culture. When they do that, then they gain special protections. You look at the way the Catholic Church, I was just reading about this. Uh, Sam Harris has a great article on the Huffington Post today uh, on how, how is it that pedophiles in any country would be sent to prison for 20 years for abusing children unless they're a priest. And if they're a priest, they can abuse dozens, multiples, hundreds of children, and the worst they get is reassignment. They almost never go to prison. So you can see that religions get special protections because they have infected the political brain, if you will, mm -hmm. of at least Western cultures. What about this notion of Jesus is my personal savior? You have a chapter in your book on that. You know, that whole idea is very modern, very new. You can go back 200 to 300 years and not find it. In fact, you can look at, say, the first 14 or 1500 years of Christian development and Christian evolution. And, you know, I talk like the God virus has a mind of its own. I don't want to give that impression. It doesn't have a mind of its own any more than your cold virus does. All the virus wants to do, and it's a very evolutionary process, the God virus wants to get from my brain to your brain. That's all it wants to do. God viruses that can get from one brain to the next brain are going to survive. God viruses that don't are going to die. Mm -hmm. you know, so you get the shakers. <laughs> they, don't, they didn't have a very good infection strategy. Well, you were talking about recentness of the Jesus is my personal savior. Yeah, right, right. Well, what happened was when the Protestant religion hit the shores of the United States, they met a new challenge, and, and that is there was no structure around them. And there were multiple religions competing, and they were moving west at the same time. So it was very difficult to maintain discipline. You know, it's pretty good, easy to maintain discipline in Europe because things are closer together. You've got structures that have been there for centuries. And, you know, you can burn people at the stake if they don't do what you tell them to. That's handy. Yeah, it's, it's very handy. But in the United States, it was more difficult. As people are moving west, they start reading the Bible uh, without a minister being around or it wasn't Catholics, though. Remember, Catholics were a pretty small minority in North America for, for quite a while. And there were some states that wouldn't even allow, allow Catholics to be uh, elected to office. So we've got this movement west, and the concept of evangelical evangelism and uh, personal saviorism was the way that these new god viruses could propagate. Some, it's literally a mutation of an older god virus out of Lutheranism and Calvinism. Because Lutheranism and Calvinism, while strong in Europe and in the early stages of the United States development, got weaker and weaker as it went west. You get people riding on horses, reading their own Bible and preaching stuff. 
There's a great book, uh, I read it many, many years ago, uh, by D. Elton Trueblood, called uh, The People Call Quakers. D. Elton Trueblood documented the evolutionary change of Quakerism as it went from England to the East Coast of the United States, and then as it migrated across the United States to California. And it goes through stage after stage of de-Quakerism, if you will, and becomes more and more like Baptists and Nazarenes and everybody else that was moving across at the same time. It's a fascinating study and shows that religions really evolve, and they evolve against their physical environment, and they evolve against other God viruses that are in their environment. So the Quakerism that you find in California is night and day different than the Quakers you find in Pennsylvania because the religion evolved and changed. And as a result, there's these big splits in this tiny group called Quakers. But you see other splits. I mean, you saw splits between the Southern Baptists and the Civil War. You know, the Southern Baptists are a slave religion, and they thought it was great and worked fine, and it was so important to them that they split off from the Baptist Church just before the Civil War. It was only in 1999 that they disavowed that particular viewpoint. I try to point that out to my Southern Baptist friends, but they don't seem open to that idea. That's kind of like the Catholic Church finally uh, apologizing for Galileo. Yeah, right, right, yeah, 400 and some years later. Well, how do you think guilt functions in religion? Oh, in most religions, most of the major religions, it's key. Without guilt, most religions wouldn't operate very well, if at all. I mean, can you imagine a non-guilt-driven anybody in any religion? The way it works is, I use a simple example. When you're little, your mom says, don't put your hand in the cookie jar. And what happens? You put your hand in the cookie jar, you eat it, you spoil your supper, your hand. mom catches you, she slaps your hand and says, don't do that anymore. So from that, you learn the rule, don't eat cookies before supper. The next day, mom's not looking, you get a cookie, eat it, tastes good. Now, the problem here is you feel a little twinge, and that twinge is what we call cognitive dissonance. Mom said don't, and you violated the rule. Now you feel dissonant about that, and that's expressed in the form of guilt. You have to get rid of that guilt in some way, shape, or form oftentimes. Now, as a child, you probably don't, but that's the way you learn it. And I call this, in the book, I call that the guilt cycle. And the tension, you have to feel the tension, then you engage in the behavior, then you feel the guilt, and you have to do something with the guilt. Well, religions come along and they say, you know, we're going to teach you what to be guilty of. And religions almost always teach you to be guilty of things you're going to do anyway, like eat and have sex. If the religion can teach you that is bad, then you're going to feel guilty if you eat cookies. On the other hand, if you belong to a religion that says you have to eat cookies before every meal, then you will put your hand in the cookie jar and very self-righteously eat a cookie. You will feel guilty if you don't eat the cookie before the meal. That's how arbitrary and relative the teachings of religion are around guilt. So you get Mormons saying caffeine and alcohol are bad, or Muslims don't eat pork, or Jews don't eat pork. So you would feel guilty around those. There's nothing inherently wrong with having caffeine or eating pork. But because the religion knows you're going to probably do them anyway to some degree, they're going to teach you not to. And then when you do it, you feel guilty. So what happens then? You have to come back to your particular God virus to get forgiveness. That's the beauty of the guilt system, is I've never seen a Baptist go confess their sins to a Catholic priest. And I've never seen a Catholic 
go confess their sins to a Muslim imam. It doesn't work that way. You only get forgiveness from your particular God virus. If you're an evangelical, as, as you were at one time, you get forgiveness by praying, by going to Sunday school, by reading your Bible, by singing, by asking Jesus forgiveness. That's the way you, you get expiated, if you will, for the guilt that you feel. And the guilt is almost always around something you would have done anyway. And so that brings us to the biggest guilt thing, and that's sex. All the major God viruses put a huge emphasis on sex and sexual guilt. Because that is something you're going to do anyway. You might avoid pork your whole life, so you'll never feel guilty there. But you're not going to avoid sex your whole life. I'm fond of quoting Albert Ellis, the great psychotherapist. I studied with him back in the 70s. He said, 97% of men will admit to masturbating, and the other 3% are lying. <laughs> and women probably are too. The masturbation stats are probably not much lower for women. But you think about it, if, if we're all going to masturbate, you know, all you have to do is go to the zoo and watch the monkeys. You know, They're all going to masturbate within 10 minutes after you get there. Somebody's going to be masturbating. We primates masturbate. It's just a very important part of our sexuality. So the church comes along and says, wow, we can, we can use that. Let's make you feel guilty about that because you're going to do it anyway. And the only place you can get forgiveness is our particular virus, God virus. So Catholics preach it's a terrible sin. If you do it, come, come back to us. We can help you get forgiveness from this Jesus guy who says it's wrong. And the Muslims, the Mormons, you know, you name it, they all have prohibitions in some sexual aspect. Baptists say don't have sex before marriage. Most of the Protestant religions think masturbation is wrong, but they're not as vociferous about it as Catholicism is. All of them say don't have sex before marriage. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong about having sex before marriage. Most people do it. In my church, when I was growing up, we had it beaten into our head over and over again. Sex before marriage is a huge sin. Yeah. And you know, about half the girls in our Sunday school class were pregnant before they were out of high school. So it didn't work too well. No. And the half that didn't get pregnant, <laughs> some of us tried our best. <laughs> <laughs> it was just absurd. And, you know, all my evangelical fundamentalist friends when I was growing up, we had it all beaten into our head. And yet we still were out there screwing each other because that's what adolescents do. So if if religion can teach you to be guilty of something you're going to do anyway, it makes you come back to their particular God virus. Religions really don't want you to stop doing it. They want you to feel guilty as hell when you do it, because that brings you back to us, our God virus. It's just a beautiful con game. It works perfectly. Well, I can definitely identify with that. I was raised in a Protestant tradition that taught me that, well, of course, premarital sex was wrong, and and also masturbation, and so I actually attempted for months and months and months to, you know, pray to Jesus and get his supernatural power to allow me to stop masturbating, but I actually got an accountability partner where this other guy and I would, you know, try to hold each other accountable or whatever, and yeah, it didn't work, so we would always just feel guilty about it and then do a whole bunch of praying and Bible reading. And he was masturbating right alongside, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would do it in my house, and he would do it in his, his house. But <laughs> Well, I know. I'm just saying, you know, he was having just as much trouble as you were. We have an ex-Catholic priest in one of our recovering from religion groups. Uh, went through eight years of seminary. He tells the funniest story. He said, I, I knew it was a terrible sin to masturbate. 
And I could go about 30 days before I masturbate. And I'd masturbate, and you'd feel guilty as hell, say, oh, I'm going to go to hell. And you have to run, find a priest, and confess, because I don't want to go. If I die, I'm going to go to hell. Uh-huh. He'd go confess. Get terrible relief, you know, just finally Jesus forgave me. Then he'd go about another 30 days. Then he'd masturbate. And he'd say, oh, I'm going to go to hell. I've got to find a priest. And he'd confess again. This went on for eight years. I mean, this guy was miserable for eight years because of this Catholic stupidity. But as primates, we are going to do this anyway. And there's no supernatural intervention going to stop you from doing what you're programmed to do, period. And if you somehow figure out a way to do it, it probably, and this is what I think is going on in the Catholic Church, it probably is going to force that sexual energy out in some other places. That's pretty damn inappropriate. Let me be clear, I'm a psychologist, but I'm not a clinical psychologist anymore. I used to be. I do organizational psychology now, so I'm out working with the corporations and executives. But back when I was and doing clinical stuff, I had the opportunity to work with a few Catholic priests. And I was just amazed at how ignorant they were about their sexuality and human sexuality in general. They've just been so sheltered. And they were coming to me because of major sexual issues. I, I never know the priest that ever came to me ever admitted to being pedophile. I'm not I, I never heard that, but I did hear some pretty horrendous things that they suffered as a result of not being able to be normal human beings. Mm -hmm. So the guilt cycle works beautifully with sex, and that's why all the major religions use it. We've heard about the God virus. What is the antidote? Oh, the antidote. Well, if you're a parent, the antidote is to take your children to church, and lots of them. Interesting. If you think about it, you send your kid off to kindergarten, and they come back with lots of viruses. You know, every week they got a different cold, different sniffles, something like that. Well, what we've learned about biological viruses is the human system needs to be exposed to pathogens to strengthen it. It's like a muscle being used. The more you use the muscle, the better it's stronger it gets. The more your system as a child is exposed to pathogens, the, the stronger your immune system gets. And that's why children bring their colds home to you if you're a parent, and you don't generally get the cold because you already went through that process. Your system's strong enough to withstand the, uh, the attack, the assault by that pathogen. Well, religion, God viruses are the same way. If you teach and show kids enough of these crazy ideas, they get exposed to God virus after God virus after God virus, they start realizing there's a pattern here, and they figure it out themselves. I call it the rational immune system. What you want to do is develop the child's rational immune system. And if you develop it strong enough, they probably will never get a God virus. One of the problems I see, Luke, is free-thinking parents trying to protect their kids from religion. I think that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea like rich people try to protect their kids from getting dirty. Back in the 40s and 50s, even earlier, polio was known as the rich man's disease because it seemed there was a pattern that rich kids tended to get polio more than poor kids did. Uh, well, eventually they discovered that part of the reason is poor kids are dirty. They're in the dirt. They're in the mud. They don't take baths as often. And in the soil are viruses that look and act a lot like polio. So poor kids are getting exposed to polio-like viruses, their immune systems are getting built up against this kind of a thing, 
So when they get exposed to the polio virus, they don't get it. Well, rich kids, you know, they have to take a bath every day. Uh, I took a bath every Saturday night before we went to church on Sunday. That's We were dirty most of the week <laughs> when I was growing up. So rich kids would tend to get it. Well, the same thing goes on with free-thinking parents. If you try to shelter your children from religion, they are very likely to get a God virus sooner or later because as they go through adolescence and they go through all this tumultuous hormonal angst that every teenager goes through, they are very susceptible to anything that says, oh, we can help you with that angst. We can get you forgiveness for all the guilt that your culture lays on you. And even if you're not raised inside of a religion, the culture itself is teaching you all sorts of things. So we want to expose our kids. I think we want to expose them to a wide range. Take them to a Mormon church. Take them, next Sunday, take them to a Baptist church. The next Sunday, take them to a Baha'i temple. The next Sunday, take them, take them to a pagan worship service. Get them exposed to lots of things. And the time to expose them is when they're five to ten years old. So that's when children are being are most susceptible to um, the messages of God viruses. You know, and if you do that, I would imagine you probably wouldn't even have to teach them critical thinking. Probably be a good idea anyway. But honestly, if children can see all these different religions doing this religious thing, I think they would figure it out themselves. Well, that's the hope. I think we do need to teach critical thinking skills. And I think places like Camp Quest or Lake Hypatia are places to go and learn critical thinking skills uh, with peer groups. Because, you know, kids will listen to their parents only so much, and then peers start getting to be important. Well, a year ago, about the time the book came out, I was inundated with people saying, wow, I wish I'd read this book before. I wish I'd had this book when I was getting out of religion. It would have explained why my minister behaved the way he did. And I started realizing there's a lot of people out there that are dealing with the consequences of leaving religion but have nowhere to go. If you go to a free thinker group or a meetup of atheists, they don't want to hear your life story. They, they want to go out and have fun, you know. So there's a real need to give people a place, a safe place, to talk about what do I do about my mother-in-law, still fundamentalist, or what do I do? I've raised my kids to this evangelical, and now I'm an atheist. What do I do there? And there's just nowhere to go. So I created this organization called Recovering from Religion. And we now have about 25 groups all across the United States. Oh, that's States. great. I didn't even know about that. Yeah. They meet once a month. Some meet more often. I don't care. We just require them to meet at least once a month. And, you know, maybe one month they, they have discussion around parenting issues or boss issues. I mean, we've got people come and say, man, what do I do? My boss is a fundamentalist. I used to go to prayer meetings with him. Now I'm an atheist. What do I do? And We don't have the answers to the questions, but it's a safe place to talk about them. It's just an amazing thing. There are hundreds of organizations trying to get you into religion, and ours is the only one trying to get you out of religion. And you can learn more about it at our website, recoveringreligionists.com. And if anybody of your listeners is interested in starting a group in their area, have them get in contact with me. I will help them any way I can to get it started. For example, we have a fellow who's 28, 29 years old. He's been married five years. He's fundamentalist. Sounds a lot like what you described, Luke, in your background. And now he's he's an atheist, and he comes to our groups now. But his wife's still very fundamentalist, and he said, you know, if she knew I was here, she'd probably divorce me. And we're talking about having kids, and I don't want to raise my kids the way I was raised. So what do I do? And gosh, you know, we don't have the answer, but 
he's got a tough question there. And we're there to listen and you know offer our suggestions. And we have ex-Mormons, we have ex-Catholics, we have Baptists, we have even have an ex-Mooney in one of our meetings. Man, every one of these groups, uh, when you get these groups together, we get five or six people, ten people, all recovering from a different religion, and they're listening to each other, the light bulbs start coming on in their eyes, and you can see the Catholic says, wow, I had this same problem, and I'm, you're a Baptist, I'm a cat, ex-Catholic, or... You know, the Mormon says, man, I had no idea how difficult it was being a Baptist. I thought it was hard for whatever, you know. It just really gives people a sense that they're not alone and that the problems of getting out of religion are pretty universal. So I'd really encourage your listeners to consider starting a meeting in their in their area if they want. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. You know, what what do you do if you're married to someone who who's a fundamentalist and you've lost your faith and you've got kids? I mean, what are you, you know, your boss is religious and you got used to go to prayer meetings with him? I mean, these are really tough questions. They are. They are. There's a huge place for this organization and I've got support materials. It takes very little to get a group started up and we've got a whole network of people working together. I mean, all the facilitators. We got groups in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and San Diego, California, Little Rock, Arkansas, Dallas, Texas, New York City. We, we've got them everywhere, but we need them more places. We don't have any in Florida right now, for example. We don't have any in Minneapolis right now. I'd sure like to see some up in Seattle. We don't have any up there yet. So we're just trying to push and get groups everywhere. You know, we call it RR as opposed to AA, you know, mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And what we found is if you take God out of it, you only need 10 steps. <laughs> Bad joke. <laughs> we do have 10 kind of tongue-in-cheek steps for getting out of religion, but uh, they're all on our website. Well, Daryl, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Luke. Enjoyed doing it.